Through innovation, academic excellence, and family-centered clinical care, Children's Mercy Kansas City is transforming outcomes for children around the world. Welcome to the audio interview series, Transformational Pediatrics, with host, Dr. Michael Smith. Our topic today is dystonia type 1. DBS treatment leads to near resolution of symptoms. My guest is Dr. Brian Albers. Dr. Albers is a child neurologist specializing in movement disorders and deep brain stimulation at Children's Mercy Kansas City. Dr. Albers, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Why don't we just start off with a quick reminder for us about what is dystonia type 1, um, you know, how does it present, the epidemiology um, of this disorder. So, um, yeah, uh, dystonia has been around. We've known about dystonia for very um, for long periods of time. Uh, artists in the, in the 16th century have even shown pictures of uh, patients with dystonic posturing, this twisting, writhing posture movement. Um, and it really wasn't until 1997 where the gene associated with the most common type of dystonia, our genetic dystonia, is DYT1. Uh, DYT1 is a gene that is well-known in Ashkenazi Jew populations, uh, with as much as 80-90% of people who have the gene um, progress with symptoms when they're in childhood, and then uh, many of them can present, um, pro- uh, progress to um, disabling contractures, deformities, and involuntary movement. Um, the DYT1 in particular uh, has been extremely resistant to uh, treatment, and what's so frustrating with these is these kids are often have normal intelligence, if not exceptional intelligence, um, and they're really robbed of their voluntary control and movement um, as early as six or seven, and then their symptoms usually peak when they're in teenage years, and then become uh, permanently disabled if uh, they do progress to other extremities. Um, and the research shows that if we prevent some of these symptoms from occurring early, they don't develop permanent musculoskeletal uh, deformities that will allow them to have a functional childhood. Uh, and it's when we um, have been working very hard to offer them treatments early. Yeah, and so in the past, what was the treatment um, uh, for dystonia type 1, and what was the prognosis like for these kids? So with other types of dystonia, dystonia caused by secondary uh, causes and other non-primary causes, unlike DYT1, the traditional treatments have been uh, very sedating medications like clonazepam, um, artane, which is an anticholinergic, uh, levodopa, which we often use for Parkinson's disease. Uh, a little bit later, we've been, uh, we've been able to offer uh, Botox uh, for these patients to prevent contractures. Um, but what was incredibly frustrating with DYT1 is none of these therapies were highly effective, and um, you had to use such high doses of clonazepam and artane to get even a minimal effect that it often um, the side effects out, often outweighed the benefit. So you had a patient once, um, I think her name was Autumn Nelson. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Because I think this was an interesting story uh, for her and for you. So tell us about Autumn. So Autumn is a, um, a young girl I met uh, who... Um, who is 15 years old but now, who um, was born here in, uh, in uh, Blue Springs, Missouri, which is um, a little bit of a rural area where, from where I'm from. And she started presenting with symptoms when she was six. She was a pretty normal kid, and all of a sudden she couldn't uh, use her hands to write. She used to shake a lot. And she had been to specialists all over the country uh, trying to get opinions, and they had tried the medications that I mentioned earlier uh, with uh, no resolution. And the family had gone to several specialists and just got really frustrated uh, and just decided to, um, because she's getting ready to drive, and can, although she could function a little bit with one of her hands, her other hand was, was only, she was unable to use it. 
So they came to me, and within it was pretty clear that her symptoms were consistent with classic uh, DYT1 dystonia. She had these twisting, writhing movements that were made more apparent with action. And you talk with the family, uh, it turns out the mother was adopted from Poland, and there was likely a uh, strong uh, Jewish heritage. And it became very clear that, um, that DYT1 dystonia might have been overlooked. Um, we have a genome center here, which is able, on on-site um, genetics department, we were able to get uh, the gene test within two weeks of her visit, and we were able to get her um, to offer her deep brain stimulation within within about six weeks of her visit. Um, and what was really exciting was um, where we had tried everything before. Within within a week of turning her on, she completely regained function of her arms and hands. Um, she had uh, within a month she had absolutely no symptoms at all of dystonia. Was able to um, drive a car. Was able to put her makeup on. Was able to take a bath by herself, and is uh, continuing to do very well. The other thing that was also very interesting is that her mood was starting to be affected, and her mood is not much more stabilized, probably because her dystonia is getting better, but we also know the biochemical changes associated with dystonia probably affect your, the way you think about yourself and the way you feel about yourself. Wow, what, what a great story. And so that leads us then into deep brain stimulation. How does that actually work? Are, are we clear on you know, the mechanism of action and what's, what's actually occurring to give us the, the benefit with deep brain stimulation? So it's a great question. Um, so we deep brain stimulation has been around uh, for since the uh, 80s for tremor and Parkinson's disease and, and adults. And um, the well, over 130,000 adults have had this for those types of disease. But ki- it's really been ignored in kids. And we know that we can get this super dramatic result in children, especially if we intervene early before they develop um, progression of symptoms. The exact mechanism is unknown. Um, we know in the past that we've tried to treat this disease by uh, doing pallidotomies, actually removing the part of the brain of the globus pallidus, and it would seem to be effective for a short period of time, but then it got worse. It, the deep brain stimulator is much like a pacemaker for the heart. What we think it does is it seems to either amplify or distract abnormal signals in the brain, and we can program that to allow us to have better control of the arms and extremities. And the programming is sort of like a somatotopy. It's sort of like I can control the arms and then control the legs by stimulating various regions of the brain. And we also know that from animal studies that chronic stimulation of the brain actually probably makes these neurons grow longer. They don't grow new neurons, but they probably grow longer and make new connections, which might explain why early intervention with these children can result in long-term results. It's still very controversial, but uh, again, another example of where if we can recognize symptoms in kids very early and offer them this treatment very early, we may prevent them a lifetime of disability. Yeah. So improving synaptic uh, integrity is that is that where you think most of the benefit comes with DBS? I, it has to be, in my opinion, because what we, what's really interesting about these patients, and if you've ever seen these on online or in documentaries, you turn the device on and they get a little bit better, but then they come back six months later and they're almost as if they're almost completely cured. With some cases, if you're lucky, so there has to be a phenomenon where you are blocking a signal in a real time phenomenon, just like a pacemaker for arrhythmia for the heart. But there has to be this phenomenon where the brain is actually developing and growing that may be facilitated by stimulation. That exact mechanism is the holy grail of understanding deep brain stimulation, but a very exciting one. You know, as a a neurologist, uh, Dr. Albers, do you think that when it comes to any brain condition, any brain disorder, you know, we focus so much on neurotransmitters, we focus so much on the structure and function of the brain cell itself, what about the synaptic cleft and what happens in those synapse connections? I mean, is, is that an area of research in, in um, neurology that, that you think we should be pursuing more? Well, 
without question. Um, I mean, we the, the tradition has been thus far is bathing the brain in various chemicals, and it's been very successful. But we know that really, especially in the developing brain, we know that it's some of these synaptic connections and some of these um, learning mechanisms in the brain are what's really important for a developing brain to grow. And um, why this application in children is so important, and allowing us to target very specifically uh, parts of the brain that may be not working, with DYT1 being a really good example, where we probably have focal pathology in the in the, in the lower part of the brain and not the rest of the brain. You know, rather than bathing the entire brain in the chemical, uh, we now are targeting very specific neuropathology, and we that can be applied to all kinds of conditions, which is DBS has been explored for obsessive obsessive compulsive disorder has been FDA approved with human device exemption. Tremor, of course. People are even looking at it for Alzheimer's disease. Um, there are a variety of treatments where we're now entering an age of um, electronics and le- assistive devices rather than just medications and surgery. So back to, to Autumn for a moment, you mentioned that her mood improved. Now, obviously, you know, having a, a, the dystonia under control better probably did play a role in that. But do you think DBS had an effect on um, mood as well? Um, in I, I do. Um, what was really interesting about Autumn's case in particular, and um, and I'm hoping to publish some of this and, and talk with other colleagues in this field, is that when we actually tested the neurotransmitters in her brain, her, her dopamine metabolites and her serotonin metabolites were very low. And I think this probably may be because of the integrity of the, the, the cells in her brain that were making those chemicals. But when we start regulating those those connections, as you're stating purposely, it may be an effect on mood and why some people have explored deep brain stimulation just for depression. Um, just, it's important, just like in Parkinson's disease, where we know that depression is a very probably the most devastating aspect of the of the disease before they develop the tremor and rigidity. Just like in dystonia, there probably is some depression and anxiety that goes along with the movement disorder. And we're just now starting to understand the connections between mood and memory and um, and, and movement disorder. Dr. Albers, it's fascinating, isn't it? Obviously, you think it's fascinating. This is what you're specializing in, but is it really is? And I and I, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing, and I know you're going to be very successful in your future research and um, clinical practice. And I also want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, you're listening to Transformational Pediatrics with Children's Mercy Kansas City. For more information, you can go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.